Hashtag never alone with Joe and Mark. Hi everyone and welcome back for season two of Hashtag Never Alone. I'm your lived experience host, Joe Ambrick. And I'm co-host Mark Fielding. Um, I just want to welcome back all our listeners who tuned in for season one. Um, and this is obviously episode one. Today we'll be talking about COVID-19 um, and the impacts it's had on people's mental health. We're joined by two guests who I will be introducing shortly. Um, just obviously COVID's infected a lot of things like mental health, people losing jobs. Um, I unfortunately lost jobs due to all the lockdowns. Um, we're lucky that we've got kind of both sides of the, the pond with me and Mark, um, who can obviously talk about the impact it's had in the UK and um, me being based in Melbourne. Um, just have you had like an increasing being a psychotherapist? Have you had an increasing clients and Mark? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think people have really struggled. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think people have really, really struggled. Yeah, I think, you know, client volumes have increased, you know, people are experiencing, you know, did experience, continue to experience a lot of fear and anxiety, you know, over, you know, the pandemic and, and what's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, there has been, and I guess with, with the therapist, we've all moved to online as well. So, you know, it's been, that has been a big change as well, I think, for working as a therapist, really, doing teletherapy. But yeah, that people, kind of personal aspect as well, because, I've just started seeing a therapist, but we talk on the phone because you can't go in person. And I've done face-to-face therapy before. It's definitely a lot different doing it over the phone. You don't, kind of don't have that one-on-ones. Probably, I feel like it does work for some people. It doesn't work for, might not work for others. But I feel like you lose that kind of personal aspect and that relationship with your therapist where you can kind of express how you feel a lot more. Um and me personally, obviously, doing it on the phone, it's a lot harder to kind of have that privacy that you might have in a room in a therapist's office. Um, do you feel like clients are kind of struggling to communicate a bit more with you? Well, I think it depends on, yeah, I think it depends on the client. You know, there's, there's I think there's positives and negatives to, you know, online therapy. I, mean, I think one of the positives is it's so much more accessible, you know, people that perhaps, you know, for you know, maybe for reasons of, you know, perhaps disability or that have been unable to, you know, or even anxiety for that matter, come into the therapist's office and travel on public transport and, you know, are able to access therapy. So I think that is really, really good. You know, I think online therapy works really, really well, but it does depend on the client, really. I think for some clients, it works really well for others. Perhaps face-to-face is is still a better medium. But it has really opened up, I think, therapy for people that perhaps weren't accessing it before, which I think is a positive thing. A good thing here as well, um, especially in say Victoria, our premier has opened up a lot more things for, they've put more funding into mental health, like therapists and stuff, stuff like that, and supported living for people with mental health disorders. I think that's been one of the benefits of COVID's kind of, help introduce those sort of things yeah i mean they they have been better and, and even just you know conversations around mental health you know i think because you know the whole the whole world has been going through you know a collective trauma you know i think you know perhaps it has you know been fertile ground for you know even more conversations around mental health and yeah the effects of the pandemic on mental health but more widely about mental health i mean over here there's quite a lot of celebrities coming out and talking about things. There was one just the other day, a, a Kiss DJ who came out and did a show on insomnia. Insomnia, you know, something we've covered on the show. And, you know, it, it's it's a really, really common thing and really debilitating condition that people experience. But I've really not seen much conversation around it on the media. So, you know, I think, yeah, it has perhaps, you know, been positive in terms of, you know, laying the ground for people being a lot more open about mental health because we're all going through, trauma aren't we yeah um and i would like to um gonna introduce our first, we have got two guests and i'd like to introduce our first guest um we are joined by dr sarah bentley who's from university of queensland is that right um yeah that's right yeah and sarah just um tell us a little bit about your background in regards to mental health and covid19 yeah of course thanks so much um So I'm a social psychologist, I'm a researcher with the University of Queensland, and we've got a a whole team that um, really look at sort of psychological processes um, rather than 
looking at them from an individual perspective in terms of trying to work out what's going on in terms of behavior, how people behave, how they feel, how they think, rather than kind of more the more traditional approach of looking inside the black box of people's minds, if you like, we, we look at the social context in which people function. Um, so really never taking a person in isolation, but always looking at the person with regards to who they're connected with, who they're aligned with, everyone. It's very, very rare that we're we're in a complete sort of isolation situation, even in conditions of isolation that we've been living through in the last two years. Um, so we, we take a very social understanding of um, how people are doing and how they kind of, you know, the impact of, of lives on people, but from this social perspective. So in terms of COVID, um, we've been gathering data like crazy over the last two years because it's such an extraordinary thing. Suddenly people have been forced to um, disconnect from each other um, in ways that has never been done before. And people talked prior to COVID about the loneliness pandemic, you know, in Western countries, levels of loneliness have been on the increase for a while. And it's very disturbing. And the more data we see around that, the more toxic we understand loneliness to be. That was before the pandemic. So now people have been forced to sort of disconnect. I mean, the term socially distancing isn't the best term ever because it implies that you literally, you know, you disconnect from the, the social people around you, the people that provide you with social support as opposed to um, potentially calling it physical distancing, which might be slightly better. Um, so in a way, yeah, that's been very hard for people. And we know from our data that people have been finding that incredibly difficult, that sense of, of isolation, that, that feeling of, you know, not being able to reach out, just your general kind of levels of support and um, going out to work, seeing people that you know, going on the bus, just generally like, you know, chatting in the corridor with people from work or having a coffee, all those things that are kind of like just validating and then just kind of fill up everyday life. Uh, that, that's all been taken away and that's pretty disturbing for people. Um, so we've, we've, we've seen that in our data. Um, I suppose in terms of the, there's a bit of an up, upside to that in the sense that as you were just talking about there, it's kind of raised awareness around isolation and how, how damaging it can be for people. So it's made that much more prominent in people's minds, which I think is good from our perspective as researchers who already felt this was an overlooked and, 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 and not fully understood um, process, this, this issue of um, social connection. Uh, it's now made it really, really clear in everyone's minds just how much we need social connection. If you take it away, it makes people, you know, feel very, very unwell on both physical and mental levels. Um, so, yeah, it's um, there's lots of work to be done around that. We do a lot of work collecting data, but also developing interventions to try and improve um, sense of connection for people, even under conditions of physical distancing. Yeah, so I guess from what you say, so there's already an epidemic of loneliness in the West. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so there's a lot of um, concern around that. There's, there's, you know, really interesting data out there looking at different sections of society, who's suffering most. There's obviously issues about how we do connect and communicate. I mean, it's one of the ironies that we have like so many different ways of connecting nowadays um, through um, sort of technological advancements. Uh, and that is a form of connection. I'm not saying it isn't, um, but it does change the way we connect. It's a different way of connecting. And there's, you know, potentially indicative data that would suggest that it's, it's not providing people with those rich, meaningful, enduring connections that face-to-face uh, -face interactions are, are, are what kind of build for people. So, yeah, we're never going to change technology, so we need to work with what we have. Um, and I, I, like I'm, I'm not saying it's all bad, but it is changing the way we connect. And clearly there's a, uh, a side effect, I think, where people are feeling... Uh, disconnected and, and it's kind of like even more complicated because why should how can we be disconnected when we're like talking to loads of people via our phones for instance but at the same time it's clearly not fulfilling or potentially not fulfilling people on levels of deep uh, more you know meaningful kind of connection so that's something that we need to um, be aware of I think. In, in terms of the meaningful connection, I wonder whether you could talk more about that, just, just so our listeners can really understand the difference around, you know, connection on social media and whether that be video or, you know, or, or whatever, or Instagram or, and, and, and really meaningful connection, which is, you know, face to face. Yeah, I mean, we do, um, we do work uh, delivering kind of um, yeah interventions and programs um, in a whole range of contexts, whether it's in workplace contexts, preventative programs, uh, or with students, for instance. And we also do work with in clinical contexts um, that are group workshops, kind of uh, based around 
uh, talking to people exactly about these issues. What is social connection and how do you improve social connection in your own lives? And so these are programs in the clinical context for people who are recognizing that they're suffering from social isolation. So they can be coming to the program with a whole range of, of very, very diverse issues that, that but one of the common features is the fact that they're feeling disconnected from other people. Um, they're feeling isolated on their own. They feel that they don't belong. Um, and so we have uh, one program, for instance, called Groups for Health, and that runs over five, five sessions, five weeks. Um, and it's a really interesting question about that. What is a meaningful connection? The way that we would tackle it when we go into talking to people about the importance of, we, we talk a lot about groups because um, it's kind of hard to talk about social connection. What is social connection? Even talking about groups is frankly quite hard because it's a bit of a loaded term. Like, what is a group? Mm. Um, we do a lot of talk uh, up front in our programs around that issue. And, and effectively what we, what we say to people is that uh, when we're talking about social connection, it's any connection that is having an influence in your life. And that can be a connection with one other person. It can be a connection with lots of people. It can be formal groups, informal groups, family, friendship group based. It can be, um, you know, ideologically based groups, being an environmentalist. Um, it can be culturally based groups, ethnicity based groups. It's just a, a kind of connection that you feel you have with others. And that can be on any level. And we talk very, very broadly about that uh, for very particular reasons, because if we're working with people who are, a bit, who are feeling socially bereft, we don't want to make them feel more socially bereft. We want to open up the idea of what connectivity can possibly be about. And so coming to your particular point about is that um, is that just face-to-face? -face? No, I don't think it is just face-to-face. -face. I think people can get meaningful connections in any shape or form. But I think the key thing is kind of working out um, what is meaningful for you. So everyone's going to be a bit different with that. Um, and we don't there's no like complete recipe there's no like fixed idea and once you've got it right you know but kind of like assessing what you've got assessing where you are with your connections working out what things working are working for you and what things are not and then looking at you know what you need what do you what's it what's when we're talking to people about how to form new connections for instance one of the easiest things is to kind of go through ideas about what's important to them what's important to you as an individual what's meaningful what gives you joy and meaning and purpose in life and if you can identify certain areas, however small, however tentative or embryonic, and then you can build connections on the back of that, and, and those connections can be built through a whole range of different kind of medium, um, then that's that's meaningful. That's meaningful and enduring. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, have you noticed um, from your data, has there been more of an increase in loneliness in a particular group by elderly people or young people? Yeah, there is there's, there's mixed data around that. Um, I think I think younger people are coming out as actually really quite vulnerable, which again is interesting, speaking to the issue of how we communicate and the use of technology. Um, but I think younger people are feeling more anxious and more kind of um, challenged and threatened by the lack of stability that we're that this whole kind of pandemic situation is bringing about. I don't think prior to the pandemic. It was a particularly stable time for young people in terms of concerns about you know, the environment and careers and futures and sort of, you know, there's nothing that's particularly fixed anymore. Everything's a little bit up in the air and, and everything's somewhat threatened. And then, of course, we went into the pandemic. So I think younger people are particularly vulnerable to those issues. Um, I, again, I wouldn't I wouldn't be too definitive. There is data around older people being more vulnerable. Um, but I think, yeah, that there's a little bit more data demonstrating that young people are, are coming out as, as suffering a little bit more in terms of that sense of loneliness and, and lack of a feeling of lack of control, I think. Yeah, I definitely probably agree with that. I think me personally, like it took me a while to get a job, like a proper job myself. And then COVID happened. I lost my job that I did have. Um, lucky I've found something else now. But um, and I was just talking with my partner the other day about like, I, I definitely feel like I'm a bit more agitated than normal because not knowing when I'm going to see my family who are based back in the UK can't even see my family here I think like just having that physical presence of someone like I'm lucky enough that I live with my partner and my partner's um, parents but just not being able to see my parents and giving them a hug I mean you can talk to them on Facebook and stuff but it's not the same as having that physical presence in your life and being able to give them a hug and be around them. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. No, you know, yeah. I was just going to add, I mean, like with, you know, kind of relatives and younger people that I, that I talk to, there's, 
you know, and I'm even looking back at, you know, when I was in my 20s, you know, I guess there's, there's a bit of a generalisation, but I think often there's a real, you know, there's a real imperative to go out into the world and meet people and, you know, get jobs and live life and have experience and, and you know, and that is, you know, right and normal. You know, I guess you know, in, in, in our 20s, we are just going out and experiencing. But of course, that's all been pulled back for people in a pandemic i mean even dating you know i mean there's, there's you know a lot of dating is done on the internet now tinder and and of course all that has been pulled back so i think a lot of people a lot of younger people are just struggling to find meaning in their lives they're just wondering what on earth is going on you know and sarah and the, you talk about the environment as well and that you know that's another thing that you know there's lots of lot, multiple things that young people are having to deal with in terms of their future mm. you know well, well, what is my future going to look like what you know what is the next year going to look like you know, young mm. people have no idea what the world is going to look like in even six months time, you know, and I think perhaps, you know, I think perhaps it's different for perhaps, and this is also another massive generalisation, but perhaps people that in different life stages, perhaps people with families, maybe it's slightly easier, but uh, it's a bit of a generalisation yeah. that. Yeah, I was just literally looking at some data from and, and writing something up that was um collected with students and that is again it's around an intervention that we've designed to help students because students were already feeling like very low levels of belonging or diminishing levels of belonging at that university and the stuff that we did this is actually my particular area of expertise and what I did my PhD around was to do with learning and intelligence and social connection so just demonstrating that that notion of intelligence is is really 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 coupled with a sense of belonging to your learning environment if you feel that you don't fit in your learning environment you don't feel you don't belong we talk about with social identity theorists we talk about a level of identification if you feel that you're not identified with those around you it literally affects how you think how you how you process information how your memory works um, and it's it diminishes your potential and so that's you know you look at the outcomes of student data um, and they're often um, really tiered according to sociodemographic uh, issues in, in very depressing ways. And then you're like, well, you know, that's kind of because education is geared around certain expectations and certain norms for certain levels of society. And so for some students who don't feel they belong in that environment, that can be catastrophic in terms of negatively impacting their learning potential. And so that was that was a problem for students prior to the pandemic. And then, of course, they suddenly been told to study at home and they can't even go to campus they're already feeling disconnected they're already overburdened they're already like you know got rising debts and don't really have any kind of particular career um, security and then all of a sudden yeah they're, they're literally doing classes on zoom all the time with 600 other students so that you know that's that's pretty tough that's pretty hard for them and it's, as you say it's a kind of trauma that they're going through you look at the data around um, other lockdown scenarios um, it it, it registers in people like a sort of yeah ptsd after the event it takes a while to get over those sorts of things so yeah, yeah it's, it's it's pretty serious stuff yeah it's funny you mentioned that i know it's obviously in myself being from a boy i study online but mine's always been online but a lot of international students as well that have come over here to, like to australia to study or gone to other countries to study um and i've noticed a common theme here as well the government aren't like helping support them as well so they kind of feel abandoned as because I've got no income, no government support. Like, I didn't get any government support because I'm not on the right visa. And if I, I didn't live with my partner, I would probably would have had to go home because I had no income. I had mm. I was studying, but government weren't giving me any support. Um, and I, someone, um, guy wrote this story. He's from overseas and he came over here to study. And he's literally pretty much ended up, he was doing like a internship. Um, as part of his uni course and then he lost his internship he had no income pretty much I think he ended up homeless as well and he's pretty much had to pack his bags up and go back home just because there's been no support from the government if you're not a resident or you're not on a certain visa yeah it's happened here too yeah um yeah do you have any more questions you'd like to ask Dr uh, Sarah yeah, I mean, I just wondered if there's any, I don't know whether this is an area that, that you research, whether there's any research on relationships and, and how they those have fared um, through the pandemic. I mean, I, I work a lot with couples and, you know, I've noticed the, the effects. I guess it's been quite different, really, for, 
couples and families to you know, all be kind of isolated in the same house. So I just wonder whether there's any research into into how, what what the effects been. Yeah, I mean, I personally don't directly do that um, research into that area, but I mean, I've seen the stats around um, to go to the rather negative end of the spectrum around domestic violence. Mm. And obviously that's deeply concerning. So yeah, it's um, one thing for, you know, relatively okay functioning groups of people to lock down together. It's another thing for people, groups who are functioning poorly to begin with, and then they're suddenly expected to spend every waking hour with each other without any form of escape I, I i i find that like a yeah extremely distressing um issue and the stats on that are pretty disturbing so i mean i think one of the things that is clear about something like a pandemic and it's different different countries have managed it differently but you know we talk about everyone we, we think about how you survive a trauma like that in terms of different resources that people can have whether that's logistical resources or financial resources but i think we we ought to also think about those social resources if people have a lack of social resource what we see in our data is that they are extremely um, impoverished their levels of distress their levels of resilience their levels of of burnout are, are so much higher so if people are going into a, a challenging time with you know relationship problems to begin with or with mental health problems to begin with or, or with kind of like just uh, you know just issues such as having to work from home and having dependence you know you, there was always this kind of divide between some people saying yeah it's I really love it I work from home and it's great and I'm so productive <laughs> it's like okay well that's brilliant but you know for people who haven't got uh, a spare room and good bandwidth and they're looking after kids at the same time um, that's really no small thing. And if all of a sudden they're competing against others who have, who have none of those kind of complexities in their life, then all of a sudden you've got a really unequal situation going on. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's something we have to be very, very aware of, that those people who are under-resourced in those social areas are really vulnerable subsequently in these situations. Yeah, that's that's such an important point. You know, it's so easy to you know to say, oh, it's so so much better working from home. We don't have to travel. But just as you mm -hmm. say, it really depends on what that home situation is. Yeah. You know, I guess if you know if you're you know upper management or you're part of a senior team, you know, and you have that level of kind of finance and privilege, and you have an office, then great. You know, you mm -hmm. work from home. But you know, if you're you know in the middle of London, living in a flat share with six other people, one router and you know you're expected to compete with other people you know that are working in different conditions then you are you know it's going to be a lot more difficult and a lot more anxiety provoking as well so I think that's yeah really important yeah 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 we, we look a lot of issues of sort of you know if people it's interesting again some of the data when you go through a collective trauma if people feel that they're in it together uh, it can actually be despite the trauma quite a positive experience feeling that you're kind of helping each other and you're unified around a cause which you would not have been unified around before those things that are, are quite amazing quite powerful and kind of from our perspective as social psychologists when group psychology is often um, somewhat negatively perceived as if like, when people function in groups they do bad things well actually it's really not the case when people function in groups positively they work together it's a very very powerful force but you know that's that's the positive side of it. But if it's not working well, and if you're not with people who are working together, and you're not feeling that level of support from others, then yeah, it's a very different story, and it can be very toxic. So, um, but say, uh, thank thank you for joining us, Sarah. And um, we're going to introduce our next guest now. Um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Simone Rye. Thanks for joining us, Simone. My pleasure. Thanks for having uh, me. Oh, um, you could just give us a little bit about your background and stuff and what you, you've been doing to help people during COVID with mental health and yeah sure so I'm a um I'm a specialist occupational physician so I'm a, I'm a medical doctor and medical specialist here in Sydney and um an occupational physician really looks at the impact of work on health and also health on work uh, I've got wide experience within the pandemic scenario. I was um, one of the acting senior medical officers at um, Qantas when swine flu hit. Now, about 10 years ago, H1N1 was a, you know, an influenza that came into the country and um, 
I sat on the crisis management team there for Qantas and we uh, managed the pandemic spread that came into Australia originally and then and then spread right throughout the airline. Back then we had sort of 35,000 staff and about 12,000 contractors. So um, it, was, it was a huge airline and uh, huge staff numbers. So uh, as an occupational physician these days, I still... Um, provide pandemic and other related advices to large and small organizations do loads of podcasts and webinars and seminars and education sessions so I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist clinical psychologist um, but as an occupational physician we have a, a wide ranging expertise looking at physical and psychological impacts of health on work um, uh, we, we, in my own business, which is Totium, uh, run uh, advisory services for, for very large organisations. And what we have found, uh, by and large, is that the incidence of stress, anxiety and depression has skyrocketed um, through, our, through the data collected in our GP clinics. Some of the GP clinics that we own and operate are on site in large campuses of, of big technology and other companies. And some of the GP clinics are in the community. But by and large, um, within the workforce, which is where I spend most of my time researching and looking at, at um, problems, is that there has been um, what, what I call VUCA or V-U-C-A. So this is a volatile kind of scenario. You think about in Wuhan in China in December of 2019, there was this emerging kind of corona type virus. We'd, we'd seen coronavirus before uh, through SARS, a sudden acute respiratory syndrome and MERS, which was a Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. So we knew how corona type viruses behaved. However, on this occasion, millions and millions of people, including workers, of course, and uh, we're getting very sick and dying uh, to the point that by March of 2020, the World Health Organization called this a pandemic, which is pretty unheard of in such a rapid period of time. So right back, if we go back through the history, um, right back then, there started to be some fear. Where did this come from? Why is it moving so quickly? Why haven't we seen this before? What do we do next? How come people are dying so quickly? And so the volatility was, was, was really clear right from the start. And then as we move through, um, things have been very uncertain. So we thought there was some certainty. We thought it was spread through respiratory droplets coughing on each other. So we sort of distanced people out, you know, one and a half metres, thinking if someone coughed and the respiratory droplets fell, they probably fell somewhere between one and 1 1.2 metres. So if you're 1.5 metres away from someone, you weren't going to get sick. You know, I'm just speaking in medical terms. And then we realised quickly that the COVID-19 virus, which is COVID meaning coronavirus identification 19 because it came in 2019, um, you know, was, we were finding people were sharing surfaces and getting sick. So the uncertainty escalated again. And then more recently with the, the Delta strain where we're now seeing people passing each other in shopping centres and, and contact tracing would indicate that's the only place they've ever been ever in the same scenario was in a shopping centre here, not far from my home in Bondi Junction. Um, Again, the uncertainty. So I feel like there have been waves of uncertainty around the medicine, actually. And then the other, when we think about VUCA, so volatile and uncertainty we've covered, but then this is a very complex scenario, um, you know, from a work viewpoint and to Sarah's um, discussion around loneliness, um, you know, we very, very quickly sent people home to work. Um, we sent them out of the offices and you have to go home. Um, you know, this was this was a massive shift. I remember when I had a newborn baby only 10 years ago, it was a privilege to be able to work from home one day a week to try and manage my life and my family and, and my newborn. But, you know, we were sending people home and people, um, people weren't set up to work from home. So, you know, um, not everyone lives in a, in a house that has an office like I do. Um, most people, uh, particularly in the median income earners, you know, were having to go and work at their kitchen table and they might have to share the kitchen table with one of the other people that lived in their home. Or they might have to homeschool their children and the children have to share the kitchen table with you and your partner. And it, uh, it was very, very complex. So the complexity wasn't just around the virus and the uncertainty. And, but what do we do? What do we do now? You know, and there was, there was so much ambiguity around um, 
which is the A of, of VUCA, things were, were quite ambiguous and no one was really sure what was going to happen next. So, you know, these were unprecedented times in medicine and certainly in company medicine where I sit. Uh, working from home was a, a massive shift. Um, so what we saw is people were becoming uncomfortable and I, I say that, you know, from a physical viewpoint, we've just discussed the kitchen table or if you work for a large technology company and your campus of work is your life. So you might just live in a, a one room studio with your bed and your kitchen and your bathroom in sort of one room. And you would go to work from seven until seven on your big shiny campus where everything was made available to you. So people were sent home to these one room environments um, and they were becoming uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable but also um, emotionally uncomfortable and um, we were seeing uh, and psychologically troubled so we were seeing uh, very significant increases in mental health um, concerns people had already had well-managed stabilized anxiety and depression were having exacerbations of those in the working from home environment and certainly the um, the stress levels uh, increased out of sight uh, you know increased um, uh, dramatically uh, and we're, we're still not we're still not home and host we're still seeing you know very large um, spikes in presentations of people just feeling really out of sorts around all of those things the uncertainty the complexity um, you know and from a, from a medical viewpoint uh, I touched on the virus and the emerging scenario of the virus but these days you know there's a, a big push for vaccination I won't I won't go into the whole vaccination debate but um, people were uncertain about the vaccine, vaccine, how come it was made so quickly, but that's not normal. Which one am I meant to have? You know, we have people in the community talking about vaccines by the name of the company that makes them. Never in my 20 years of medicine have I discussed a vaccine by a company name. <laughs> you know, you talk about a typhoid vaccine or a hepatitis B vaccine, but uh, here in Australia, we talk about Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Moderna. I mean, these are names of companies. So people uh, suddenly became very, very interested in vaccinations and vaccines. And that creates, when you don't know the medicine or the science behind it or why things were made so quickly, it creates more uncertainty and more complexity. And, and, um, and to Sarah's point, people, people's behaviour change. Uh, they're lonely, they're at home, they've got the internet at their fingertips and all they've got is what the internet's kind of feeding them. And so uh, mental health uh, conditions and exacerbations of them have been, you know, really significant in, in the world in which I work. Yeah, it's definitely changed a lot of things like working from home and even like job interviews and stuff are now online and... For me, like it changed the way I've applied for jobs. Before I did apply for jobs in cafes, restaurants, in office jobs. Now I'm looking at jobs that kind of are gonna assure job security, especially with the pandemics. I worked in a cafe that I started, I think I was literally at the start of May, I started. And then we had, I think two or three lockdowns during the time that mm. I worked there. So I was literally only there for only like two months and I, barely worked I don't even think I worked a straight month because of all the lockdowns and I lost my job because they had to shut down um so it changed the way I was applying for jobs I'm now working for as part of like the COVID helpline things to help people like with information on lockdowns and restrictions and I, I went for those sort of jobs because I knew that it's gonna be around for a while because of COVID but it's just such a surreal experience of not knowing what sort of jobs that are going to guarantee security as well yeah and so there there you have it you know the financial concern um around is my job secure what happens if i have to go back into the office what happens if i don't want to go back into the office but my company makes me will i then go this is not me of course but you know will i go part-time maybe maybe i just want to have two days at home and only work three days what does that look like for me financially you know, when I train people around uh, money and, and financial security and their health, you know, money gives people choice. And to your point, if, if you've got more month at the end of your money, that is very stressful for the whole month, you know, and so then you've got that on, on top of the other working from home environment. And the other, the other great point is, you know, if, you, if you're living in a, 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 an area of your home um, where you sort of have your kitchen table or 
or you might be sitting at a, a small table somewhere or sitting in bed and sitting on your lap, uh, you know, with your computer on your lap, then it starts to feel like you're living at work. And when you frame working from home as living at work, people, you know, nearly vomit because they don't want to feel like they're living at work. But unless they have those ground rules and those barriers, then it does become a bit of a mishmash. Um, and so, um, yeah, we, we have all heavily relied on technology. I was listening to you guys talk before I was introduced. And, you know, in, in my business, what I have found is that if I had established relationships with people prior to COVID, and, and by and large, this is also the feeling of our whole team, but if we had established relationships, we might have met in a coffee shop or been to meetings at each other's companies previously, we found the transition to uh, an internet-based um, chat like we're doing tonight quite easy but what we have found is establishing new relationships so of course um, with totium we are have been inundated with requests around the pandemic what is it can you do a presentation on vaccines can you do a presentation on working from home what if i'm a manager how do i manage my workforce remotely when i've never done this before you know and so we um, are having to establish you know dozens of new relationships with people all through the internet and i agree with all of you it just doesn't feel the same, although it's, it seems to be easier if we've had that face-to-face -face contact and relationship beforehand. So, yeah, the working from home stuff has been massive with respect to mental health, um, job uncertainty, financial security, and then we go into the manager's piece. You know, um, people aren't trained to manage people remotely. They're usually having their team. They might go out for a coffee. They have a meeting room. They might meet at the same time every week. But because of COVID and a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more adaptability because we're online. Managers are also really struggling and trying to put all of their energy into their people, but actually forgetting to put their own oxygen mask on first. So, yeah, I, I mean, I could talk to you all night and all day about this, um, but I'm mindful you might have some specific questions or some other things you would like to chat about. I mean, there is so much, I mean, just as you said, there is so much complexity you know, in, in, in the workplace. I mean, I just want something, a new member of staff begins, you know, in, in a company. And now normally, you know, if they're going into the office, you know, they would probably be having conversations with the team. They would be getting those interpersonal strokes, thinking of Eric Byrne and, you know, the kind of whole interpersonal you know, senior members of the of staff will probably be talking to them. They'll be mentoring, informal mentoring going on. But now someone starts at a new company and they're completely siloed. And so all of the, you know, all of the benefits of being in the office are taken away from them. So really difficult for that new person to feel as though they're part of the team. It must be incredibly hard, really. It, it, that's exactly right. I, I have a, um, a head of operations in our business who, when he came to us, um, had only ever worked from home with a previous company. So he'd been on a contract for nine months with a, a large university here in Australia and started two days before the entire university was sent home. So he basically got his computer and got his passwords. You know, they, all these things take time. So he's basically onboarded. Uh, and sat there for one day and thought, you know, on, on day three, day four, I'll find my feet, I'll go and introduce myself to some people. But on day three, he was sent home and spent that nine months working from home, which uh, he talks about being incredibly difficult. We, we, we lean on him all the time about little tips and tricks that he kind of had to come up with, because this was in the early part of the pandemic as well. Now we, we might be a little bit more learned or a little more comfortable with the process. But in, you're exactly right. In occupational medicine, we talk about the health benefits of good work. And what is good work? I mean, <clears throat> how long is a piece of string? But um, the health benefits of actually getting up, getting dressed, mm. being on time to somewhere, social responsibility, time management responsibility, interpersonal skills, all of these things absolutely improve our health outcomes. Uh, and so shifting people to home and asking them to interview remotely, um, you know, has started to impact people's health. Uh, and, you know, as a physician, that's my worst nightmare, followed closely by, you know, a girlfriend of mine is a breast cancer, a prominent breast cancer surgeon, and she has a, a small pile of breast cancer results of mostly women around the country who are too frightened to go and have a biopsy or go and have their surgery or come and see her because of the fear of, you know, of the fear of being face to face with someone. And so used to sitting behind the computer, but but these women have breast cancer. 
and they're not getting their treatment on time. So, um, yeah, it's it, what the computer is enabling us to do and be safe at home is also a barrier for people to leaving their house and going and getting good medical care. So, yeah, it's, it's been incredibly difficult for people, I'm sure. You also, like, touching on what Mark said about new jobs, use that opportunity that like, when you start a new job, you make new friends, you develop new relationships and friendships with people at work and you don't have that if you start a new job and you're working from home you don't get that and then it might make the job a lot less enjoyable you don't have someone to fall back on or someone to talk to about the work especially if you don't know the people that you're working with that well because you haven't met them in person and I kind of think the growth through you know they're just looking at the company you know the organization as a um, just as a system I guess the growth through the system is really impeded, isn't it? Because if, if new members of staff are starting and they're not becoming part of the group and they're not having conversations and, you know, they're not sharing knowledge, then I guess, you know, ultimately the, the organisation grows less. I mean, it has a real impact, I would imagine, on the organisation as a whole, really. And the longer this goes on, the more of an impact it, it has, I would imagine. Oh, that's exactly right. Um, I was reading some um, information in the Harvest, um, Harvard Business Review and it looked at exactly that. And it looked at executives are appearing to be far more productive at home, very grateful for not having to get in the car and drive to the office. However, if you're a non-executive type, which by and large is you know, most of the working population, then their productivity is significantly reduced at home. And so when we talk about um, the connection and the corporate knowledge that you learn by being on site with other people, um, uh, the productivity might drop off at home and to both of your points you know starting a job being interviewed online working online there's only and to my point where you know real connection is made probably in a face-to-face environment and to Sarah's point then all of that's lost Um, and productivity goes down morale goes down and yes you're right of course then the return on investment of your people h in hr means humans (laughs) so you're investing in humans to you know uh, to uh, help in your business and productivity is low and the morale is low um, yeah the business absolutely would suffer as a result of that we talk about the four c's in in workplace um, uh, medicine, which is connection, colleagues, communication, and coaching. Coaching might mean seeing a psychologist or a, an employee assistance program, but it might just be through sort of through mentoring. Um, so connection, colleagues, communication, and coaching. I mean, they're, they're instrumental in people thriving at work, and we're losing a bit of that in the in the pandemic. And, and I think I've you know I've heard from a lot of friends. You know, I have a lot of friends who you know work in the city. And, you know, they, they would, every time I'd see them, they would moan about the community and say, oh, I really hate getting the tube. And, oh. But now the same people are saying, oh, I really miss it. You know, I really miss finishing work and getting on the tube and reading my book and, you know, and just, just that kind of space between work and home, that kind of demarcation. I'm really missing that space. You know, I put my laptop down and all of a sudden I, I'm at home, you know, going in and getting the coffee in the morning, going in, just having that talking to the barista or going into the corner shop and just buying something and having that kind of that conversation with somebody, all of that, you know, is really, really crucial. I think to people's happiness, you know, being in the flow of life is you know, the way I, you know, talk about it a lot in therapy. And of course we're not, you know, we, we, we're working from home and we're deprived of all of those interpersonal interactions and, you know, and those interpersonal interactions are really important for our happiness, aren't they overall? Oh, absolutely. Um, as our barriers, you know, 10 years ago in medicine, we would talk about work-life balance. So, you know, shut your computer, get on the tube, your work has stopped and life starts or, or words to that effect. And then technology really um, had a great part to play in allowing us, you know, I remember a, a prominent CEO of a technology company saying, you know, with this new computer, you'll be able to do all of your work in 30% less time. But in fact, what we did is just ramped up our productivity and kept working the same hours and punching out far more um, than, than anyone had ever punched out before. And so without those firm ba- barriers, whether it be in my case, shut my office door and 
you know, go downstairs and cook dinner for our family. Um, but, but for reasons I said earlier, not everyone has that physical barrier where they can just come into an office and close the door. So, um, yeah, uh, so now we sort of have to talk about life balance and the flow of life is exactly right. You know, the routine, getting up, getting the coffee, getting on the tube, you know, reading a book on the way home has all gone out the window. And so people are just feeling um, like they're living at work, basically, I think. I just wanted to say whether you wanted to come in, whether you've got any thoughts around kind of what we're talking about at the moment. Yeah, I mean, everything that Simone's saying is, is what we're seeing as well, that sense of, well, people hate to feel out of control. It's the most horrible of human conditions to feel that you don't have any control uh, uh, over large things, small things, whatever, but you need to feel that even if it's just a perception of control, that's what we need. Uh, and the complications and the, and the, the sort of breakdown of those boundaries that you've been describing is, is very unsettling for people and very disturbing. And then you mix that in with a complete lack of connection, like you say, the colleagues, communication, um, that's all, that, that's what humans are all about. And you don't have any of that if you're not actually seeing those humans. I do think that there are, I mean, we talk a lot about it in the education space. It's very hard for um, lecturers to feel that they're delivering a quality of experience for their students when they're literally 600 of them on Zoom and they've all got their cameras off. Um, we're not, we're not going to change that. So I think that there are things that we can do in terms of acknowledging where we're at and using the technology in slightly different ways. I don't have any radical or revolutionary answers, but I mean, we've all been Zoomed out with our meetings. Um, but sometimes, for instance, you know, arriving or, or having a section of your Zoom meeting at the beginning where you just check in with people in terms of how are they doing for five minutes, just a bit of general chit chat, which you would be if you were meeting someone in a physical room with you would be doing that as you meet and everyone gets together and sits at the table, there'll be a bit of banter backwards and forwards. When you log on to Zoom and you log in from one meeting to another to another, you just bam straight into the meeting and you kind of miss all those little, you know, the, the kind of rich tapestry of life or the flow of life as you described it, Mark. And that's I think people gain most of their their learning and their experience in those in-between moments um, and that, that sense of support and that sense of being part of something. And so we've lost that. So I think that, yeah, talking about those things, I mean, it sounds like Simone, the work you do is really valuable in terms of kind of being able to um, discuss that, articulate that, kind of raise people's awareness because often you just don't have awareness and we're so burnt out and we're tired and we're just struggling to keep up. Um, so just taking a moment to be, to acknowledge, you know, what, what it is that's 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 going wrong, and, and small little things that we can do to make that a little bit better. So we you know, we had some uh, just reminded me of a meeting we had the other day to do with the the, the the stats on the uni campus about lack of belonging and how to help students out, and just tiny little things like making sure that at the end of a lecture, the lecturer just hangs on on Zoom. So if students want to hang back and have a bit of a chat in a smaller kind of like less intense 600 other students at the same time type environment um, then the lecturer will always be there for an extra 15 minutes online a kind of like open door policy but via your kind of digital interface it's not the same but it is going it is is some sort of move to recognizing that we still need those little bits, bits of kind of random uncontrolled sort of interaction where people can step forward and say hey I'm a human uh, and I'm struggling at this point and can someone just help me out a little bit and that that means so much but of course we just don't have those moments anymore um so i think there's a lot we can do to try and uh, raise awareness around these issues raise awareness about how bad they can be if we don't acknowledge them and we don't care for each other and respect each other and kind of work out uh what we can do to improve the working life um people spend the vast majority of their waking time at work so if work is causing them huge amounts of stress and burnout and that's extremely problematic for health and well-being um, and and you know it's very depressing you look at those stats we're talking literally length of life lived if people are feeling disconnected i mean there's some amazing meta-analysis that have come out recently that show that lack of social connection is is, is as bad for health as um smoking uh smoking cigarettes obesity lack of exercise it's a it's a real killer in terms of um quality and length of life lived so that sense of connection, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, we really have to raise awareness around that and try and work out how we can recognize each other as human beings and support each other, regardless of what's going on, um, regardless of the technology that we're having to use or the 
the, the challenges that we're having to go through. Um, but yeah, certainly recognizing the problem is, is the place to start. Alan, just want to wrap up. By, um, have you got any advice you'd like to give to others, Dr. Um, Simone? Yeah, I think the old adage of put your own oxygen mask on first before looking at people around you is a, a really simple, um, very powerful message. And I'm an aviation doctor as one of my skill sets. So if you know if you're at a, in a plane, an aircraft at forty thousand feet, and someone pops the door open, well, which sort of can't happen, but um, um, let's say it, the door blows off, then the partial pressure of oxygen at that altitude is minimal. And you've got about 10 seconds to nosedive the plane down to a level where the oxygen um, is, is more palatable for someone's survival. And so that's why we say in all of the, uh, you know, mundane, repetitive aircraft um, uh, cabin crew demonstrations at the start of every single flight you must put your own oxygen mask on first before you look after others because if you're at 40,000 feet and the door blows off you've got 10 seconds to get oxygen supply to yourself um, and then you can walk around and put an oxygen mask on other people that haven't had the chance to do that whereas and, and so you know from a self-care viewpoint a term that's sort of emerging at the moment and being used a lot is just make check in with yourself first and because you need your best version to be able to then go out and check in with other people and none of this is medicine this is just human you know human human connection so that's that's my take home thank you um, i'd like to thank both of our guests for joining us and it's been very insightful having two different points of view and how they've come together as well like quite some of us quite similar as well um and Thank you to Mark for helping host again. Um, and I'd like to welcome back, obviously, our listeners to season two. And our tickets for our webinar are now available, which will be on Well Mental Health Day on the 10th of October. Um, so if you're interested in joining on, us on that, um, the link's on our Facebook page and our Twitter that we've just set up and our Instagram. Um, and if you've got any links that you guys would like to share with us um, feel free to send them through and I'll share them on our social media um, and thank you again for joining us both yeah thank you so much well I could talk to you both for hours yeah, <laughs> really really interesting thank you so much for coming on thank you thank yeah. you very much yeah. <laughs> thank you okay thank you take care bye bye if you or anyone you know has been affected by the topics discussed in today's episode or previous episodes Please contact your local or country's helpline. You'll find them by going to Google and typing in helpline. Um, they have Samaritans, suicide helpline. But remember that you're not alone, as the title of the podcast says. Um, there are many other people like you that have got mental health issues and feel suicidal and feel alone. But there's always someone there for you to talk to, be it a friend, a family member, a stranger a psychotherapist or doctor there's someone to talk to I've been in that position before and talking to someone really does help it's okay to not be okay and I will see you in the next episode